You're listening to the New Utah Podcast with your hosts, Bree. People can say my name and I still don't pay attention. Chris. This is what happens when your number one health concern in the state is porn. Jeremy. Flicks it and then walks out and just kicks the living crap out of whoever. And Julia. This week on Julia does everything that's embarrassing. Uh, again, Julia's not here. Episode 335. <laughs> Happy Halloween, folks. It's gonna, if you listen to this regularly, it's coming up. Um, it will be, uh, before our next recording, so. Uh, just, just before, just a hair before. Happy spooky time. Um, get out there whatever. and visit the haunted houses before they close for the season. Hey, I was gonna tell you, Jeremy, mm-hmm. um, and maybe Bree sent it to you. We watched a video, um, the other day, uh, where a guy was talking about, he's up in Montreal, I think, but he was talking about. I think how, it was Ontario. Uh, uh, Canada. Yeah, somewhere in Canada. I don't the know. Um, but he was talking about how people, he's like, people were mad at me because I said it was going uh, to be like a, uh, a, a mild, cold, winter. mild winter or Did something. Did I send it to you? Yeah, you sent yeah. it. That was really cool. So, but he, he was said that I know because of my bees. I keep bees and these are some things that they do that indicates what kind of season we're going to have. And he said like one of the things that he notices is if they collect a whole bunch of pollen. Uh, and there's a ton of pollen going into like late fall and early winter. It means that the bees think that they're not going to have food Until because it's going to be a, May. it'll yeah. be a long, it'll be a very long winter and they won't be able to get out until much later right. in the yeah. year. And he said, and this year they haven't done that. So I'm predicting a mild, a mild winter. winter. Yeah. And he said, one of the other things that sometimes will happen is they'll requeen in the fall. Uh, even though the other queen exists, but they requeen in the fall because the queen can actually turn off producing eggs. She can eggs. turn off producing her legs, but she can't turn but it back on. But if she's too old, she won't be able to re- start producing. And maybe that's what happened with your queen. Maybe. Uh, a couple of years ago when you lost the hive, like maybe, early spring. Maybe, winter, but maybe she shut down during And just the couldn't come back. Winter and... Because it got... Remember, because it got warm and then it got cold again. So, yeah. And and maybe that's what happened. Maybe that's... She just shut off and then couldn't reproduce when yeah. she tried to turn back That was on. really cool, and I, I've not ever noticed that before, but... I'm going to pay attention. To yeah. Because I've only got a couple more times of checking the hive before I close it up for the winter. I'm going to pay close attention and see if if I've noticed. However, if they're in, in Canada, if they're thinking it's not going to be... If they're thinking but, it's going to be mild in Canada, it's going to be like, mild down here. Well, it's mild in that part of Canada, too, because Ontario has not a lot the same weather that we do. Like, our weather in the winter is dependent on where the jet stream lines up, right. pretty much. Like, if the jet stream is way too high... Then we don't ever see any weather. If it's way too low, then we get these weird fucking weather patterns that don't do anything. If the jet stream runs across us is when we get uh, the wettest winters, essentially, because we get all of the stuff bringing, you know, coming right down across the us. crazy so. weather we've had the last few years. Like, it's anybody's guess. Uh, it's expected to be pretty dry, I think. Um, it's funny because, like, the Farmer's Almanac predicts that shit pretty fucking accurately. And it's like, they're not... They're not meteorologists. They they just know, like, the people that write that just... I'm assuming it's like the bee person and it's yeah. other people like that that just read the land, know the animals, and say, well, according to what I'm seeing... Yeah, this is what this is what it looks like it's going to be. This is how things are behaving. Because yeah, it's usually pretty spot on. That's pretty damn close. <laughs> like, it's usually really close. It's really kind of amazing when you think about it, like, the intuitiveness to, like, look at all of those different signs and come up with the kind of predictions that they come up with. That's how 
Native Americans predicted the weather and seasons for thousands knew how to, of years. Knew not, how to save up for the winter. Not just them, anyone right. in the whole globe. Like, all those ancient cultures that did that sort of stuff. I mean... We've only had meteorologists for not even yeah, they just, years. They just watched what the animals were doing because right. they could sense... Yeah. The pressures and crazy things, whereas if a beaver does this with a dam, it's gonna cause this and it's gonna be, and, it's, and if the deer are doing that, yeah, it's yeah, crazy. it's weird, but like they, they just watch for those patterns and they can see. But the, the bee thing was really interesting to yeah. me, and I was like, I wonder if Jeremy's ever noticed that stuff. I have not, but that is really cool. And that makes me want to go, bees are so fucking amazing. Like, <laughs> well, and the guy in the thing was saying, I don't know how they do it, they have tiny brains. I don't, don't ask me how. I'm just telling yeah, he's you. He's like, he's like, they have brains that are probably microscopic. It's like, but somehow they can predict the weather about six months out and they're usually pretty spot on. Yeah. Like, why would they do that otherwise? Because that's not something they do all the time. It's not like a normal behavior. Yeah. That's wild. That's it's amazing. Cool. But it's true. I mean, if we, if we could learn to look at nature more so than we do and think, well, we're the apex predator. We don't need to. No, you'd learn a lot if you pay Yeah, attention. well, I mean, we do things like we look at nature and we go, okay, this, I mean, we've talked about it before with, with some of our uh, snake oil salespeople. Um, no offense, guests that have been on the show and <laughs> participate in multi-level marketing bullshit, direct sales, whatever the fuck you call it. Um, peppermint oil is not the cure-all, but there's something to be said about a lot of that stuff. Like aspirin comes from the bark of a tree. We figured out at some point in human history, like this thing has properties that help reduce inflammation and pain. Uh, and so, you know, used to be here, chew on this is piece of fucking tree bark. They figured out why it did that scientifically and have extracted the chemical and now synthetically produce it. It's the same thing as opioids. Well, like, the crazy thing is we, we synthetically made it all. And then over time, we're realizing that synthetic stuff is garbage, and we're slowly going back to the pure yeah. form of things. I mean, I think part of I think part of that is when you synthesize something and you extract just that one single property, you miss the wholeness. So one prime example is um, the food we eat, ultra processed food. One of the reasons ultra processed food is is not great for you. Um, is because they strip a lot of the stuff out in processing that your body needs. So, for example, fiber. Uh, fiber is really important in your body. I just started taking Metamucil a few weeks ago, pooping like a champ. I recommend it for anyone. <laughs> it is fantastic. <laughs> if you don't feel like you have enough fiber in your diet, you should get some Metamucil. Get the sugar-free kind, though. Don't fucking have all those extra calories for no reason. But one of the things about fiber is if you don't eat enough um, actual, like, good fiber, so whole fruits and vegetables, whole wheat, like whole whole wheat, not whole grain, whole wheat bread that has... Bran. That has, yeah, that has the actual, like, wheat husk and stuff. Because the unbleached white flour or the enriched flour... That That's doesn't, not it. That doesn't have the fiber in it to anymore. So you have the carbohydrate, but you don't have the fiber. And what the fiber does in your... You guys are all getting a fucking health lesson right now. So what fiber does in your body, you cannot digest it. So humans, our digestive tracts do not digest those things. So Think of a chimney sweep with that chimney brush, like scraping out the chimney. Yeah. Well, and what <laughs> happens is that fiber... So there's a couple things. One, the fiber makes your stomach feel full. 
right? So that's why you should actually eat a salad before you eat the rest of your meal because it helps fill your body with fiber that's not something you can digest properly. So your body breaks it down as small as it can and gets some nutrients out of it, especially vitamins and minerals and stuff like that. But ultimately, the fiber part of it just goes straight into your intestinal tract. And in your intestinal tract, Everything that you're not supposed to absorb or that you shouldn't absorb a ton of, like fats and oils and stuff like that, that are good for you in small quantities that your body needs, but you don't want, like, if you eat a greasy fucking hamburger and you don't have any sort of fiber with it, your body will absorb a lot more of that fat than it should. But if you have fiber in your digestive tract, it will bind to that fiber and then you just shit it out later. (laughs) And so you have bulkier stools, your body eliminates them easier. Like, but uh, well, it's, uh, Angie explained it in a really good way once, which is these these high processed foods are giving you a portion of what your body needs, and so um, for those of us that have like <laughs> cravings and things like that, you eat a bunch of sugar and then you want something salty, and so you eat something salty and then you want sugar and then you like your body starts craving all these weird things, but because you're not eating them all at at the same time. It, it's it's these in, what are they incomplete incomplete amino acid chains yeah. and stuff and so it it causes you to to be in this terrible cycle of where you're constantly seeking out the other side of that chain to make it complete the missing pieces but you're not actually eating them together to make them work together so you're constantly looking so like if you eat beans and rice you've created a complete chain and you'll notice that you don't feel hungry you don't crave anything when you're done. You feel nice and full. You should be eating, by the way, brown rice, not white rice, because white rice doesn't have the same kind of fiber content that brown rice does. Because, the again, the shell of the rice is the part that has the fiber in it, and you should be eating that part. <laughs> but, the, but by completing all of these things or eating them the way that they're supposed to be eaten... <laughs> Everything works better. This episode brought to you by Fiber One. <laughs> yeah, by Metamucil. <laughs> but store brand Metamucil though, because it's way cheaper and it's the same shit. Um, no, but so anyway, that 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 whole long explanation and rant that I just went on um, is really just to say, like, yeah, the stuff that we we discover out of nature that we synthesize. I think one of the things that we miss is that there are other parts of it that probably have some benefit or work well with it that we're, you know, we're leaving out that Mm -hmm. we probably shouldn't. So, you know, chewing on a cocaine leaf is different than snorting cocaine that is extracted from said leaf and is in a pure form. Probably not as fun, though. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I'm advocating cocaine use, listeners. Um, I'm not. Although there are some instances where, like, it's appropriate, but not just not the way like that we're using it now. In the late 1800s. No, in your Coke. <laughs> Literally. But I mean, cocaine, this is like, it's a prime example. Cocaine is not a synthetic drug. Coca- and that's what a lot of people don't realize that. Cocaine is a natural drug. It comes from a plant. We don't get, like, crack is not something someone produces in a lab. Crack is, starts out in a fucking plant in, like, Central America. They squeeze the juice out of this plant... The leaves dry of, the, it out. of the coca plant, they squeeze the juice out, they dry out that juice, and it makes pure cocaine. Cocaine, it has the juice. Yes. <laughs> and that's the stuff that then they put with baking soda made to make crack. But whatever, it's cocaine is not a synthetic thing. It's actually from a natural plant. But the dentists used to use cocaine all the time. 
Just rub it on and your And that's why now we have things like lidocaine. Right. Uh, anything that ends and in a cane, cane is from that okay. process and from cocaine originally. Like the, the, that discovery of what that does. And so that's used as a numbing agent in a lot of different things. So none of that has anything to do with Utah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. Are you uh, sure there are people here in Utah that have, that take cocaine? Take cocaine? Do, do, do cocaine? I, I don't know. I know there are. <laughs> Whether or not they're listening to the show, yeah, that's a different story. I mean, maybe they are. Maybe they're on the. Maybe they like. Maybe they like it when we wander around like this. Like it makes sense. Maybe it's like Saturday night and they're on a bender. They've been drinking and snorting coke for like four days. Best podcast I've ever listened. Fuck you guys, gotta hear this. And if you do, by the way, please share the episode. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Our ramblings make sense to them. They're talking uh, about cocaine. Hey, speaking and going of to the bathroom, speaking of cocaine and booze, because most people that do cocaine are also drinking. Because you don't really. They're feel also drunk boozers. Um, Utah may be bringing back uh, mini bottles. It sounds like. I mean, we passed the, the the law, right? Well, and technically, you can still order them, but they're just not readily available. Well, and also, like, okay, so mini bottles are not useful for the everyday consumer at the liquor store. That's not what the mini bottle purpose is. Sometimes they work that way, but for them, like no one's going to go to the store and buy a fucking mini bottle. They're going to buy a pint, right? right? At, at the, at the least. And like even the homeless people, they buy pints. Mini bottles are used for uh, gift type things. I've seen like these cool, uh, for like, Bachelor parties and stuff, they make the lays yeah, with mini bottle the little lays. mini bottles in them. Christmas gifts where you do like, instead of the little fruits on the stick, it's the little mini bottles on the stick. Yeah, you can do like a mini bottle bouquet. Like those are the types yeah. of things. And then the other thing is for the hospitality industry, for hotel rooms, for... Airplanes. Airplanes. Travel. You know, travel. Uh, <laughs> You're paying $11 for that mini bottle on an airplane. <laughs> uh, but but the point is, like, you know, that's where those mini bottles are really used. And they're usually like one and a half to two ounces. 1.75, I think, is the standard. Uh, and um, I think they're fun. Like, the when we were in Hawaii, I got some of the little Gentleman Jack mini bottles. They're just freaking cool because it's the same because it's like baby shoes. Bottle, but... Like the little baby Nike is way cuter than Chris's yeah. size 10 Nike. 10 and a half, 11, whatever size you wear. 10 and a half, 11, I think, yeah. So in true Utah fashion, we passed it, and now for some reason it's up for debate. Well, because no, of no. that exact thing that you just said. They're cute, and kids like them. So the commission, the Utah... so. Utah's got weird liquor laws, guys. Um, the, the Utah Department of Alcohol and Beverage Services has guidelines. The U- Utah, uh, DABC has guidelines, um, that they have to adhere to. And at one point in time, uh, they said no many bottles. This was a long time ago. Uh, 32 years. So it was yep. 1990. I can't do math. And the concern back then was kids are getting these and hiding them and blah, 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 because people are, they're fucking stupid. They don't, most of the DABC does not understand what drinking and underage drinking actually looks like, um, because they're not necessarily drinkers themselves. Now, in their defense, they do a lot with what they're handed. And so one of the things that they are trying to do is they are considering a rule change to allow mini bottles back into the state. So they did allow the is it the pints that they allowed back in that showed up about a year ago? Pints have been around for a while. Or what was it? The 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 not the minis, but the or, or is it the pints then? The, no, pints have been around for a long no, time. No, I mean I think that the, I think that minis were 
out like you couldn't get them at all for a really long time but like i said earlier you can um you can special order you them. can special order them in but you have to special now. order a lot so the issue is order like a case they, which when we talked about gifting they don't sell them at the liquor store right you have to special order them which makes it a pain in the ass and one of the things that people don't think about is it's not just us that have to order through the DABC and through the liquor store. If a hotel wants to have alcohol in their guest rooms, they have to order many bottles through the DABC. Well, so the article from the Tribune that I tagged for you guys to take a look at, um, that is the driving force, not us people who think they make cool gifts. It's the hospitality industry. Of course, because they can't do many bars. It's That's the big thing is the hospitality industry in the Utah. It's like, you guys are kidding me. One of these guys quoted says that um, small portions allowed for control of calories and alcohol consumption. That's your argument. So, but I mean, the, the, the truth is they want people in their hotels being able to have a drink in their room and make money off of it because that's a big part of hospitality. I mean, if you literally if you go to any nice hotel and it is usually the nicer ones, but if you go to any nice hotel in the fucking country, you'll have a mini fridge that typically has a bunch of shit in it. And a lot of that shit is alcohol. There's a couple beers. There's a couple bottles of wine. There's always macadamia. Nuts. There's always some kind of nuts and candy. And there's but, usually and there's a couple some, of a, uh, some, mini bottles. Some Jack, some vodka of some sort. And, and planes. If you fly on a plane and you want to drink, it's all in the yeah. mini bottles. Now, the, the planes, the airlines, they get their mini bottles elsewhere because they fly around the country. So right. they don't have to source them here necessarily. It's kind of a different deal. But uh, the hotels do. And so this would this would open up the ability for those hotels to get those mini bottles. Jeremy pointed this oh, yeah. out before and I just found it. Ah. So, of course, it was Gail Ruzica, the president of the influential conservative logsy <sighs> group. The Utah Eagle, Eagle Forum said that when her 47... She has 47 fucking grandchildren. Um, they're fascinated by little hotel bottles of shampoo and lotion. Why wouldn't they be fascinated with these little mini bottles? And she says that she brings them home from her travels. So um, are you going to bring home mini the little bottle of Jack for or, your grandkids? And also, let me ask you, Gail Razika, who I'm sure you stay in nice hotels, but how many of your 47 fucking grandkids stay in hotels that are nice enough that they All have mini them. bars in the rooms? And has that become a problem? And 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 by the way, your eight-year-old grandchild, do your, do, you, do your fucking kids not watch that child to make sure they don't drink the fucking booze out of the mini fridge? Here's my philosophy, too. And I say this coming from a parent that 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 parented my children in this way when something is forbidden your children want it don't go into my room they want to go into your room don't uh you know go play in the street like the first thing they want to do is run out in the street to figure out why right so when you specifically say don't but you're not telling them why and they don't see it anywhere that's what they're going to go to, right? So what we always believed in is show your kids how to drink responsible, uh, responsibly. Be responsible with the way that you use your alcohol because instead of just forbidding it, you're showing them that alcohol can be consumed by responsible adults. You're able to teach them things like don't drink and drive. Um, you're able to show them what happens with your inhibitions and stuff when you're drinking so that when you're talking about 
going to a party or doing something where they could be in an unsafe environment, you can talk to them about what would happen, what could happen. When you just say don't. But this is the same group who says, who says that about sex education. Yeah. Yes. The, and, and I feel the same. And I taught my kids the same thing about that. Like we talked about condoms. I've given my kid con- kids condoms. Hey, it's homecoming. Hey, it's prom. I don't know if you have this, but here it is. Use it. I would rather you use it. I would rather provide it for you and you use that condom than you not have that condom. Then you come home pregnant or with an STD. Right. And so STI now they're infections. They're not diseases. (laughs) And so I, I, this whole thing about hiding it from your kids, like the Zion curtain and the Zion wall and all that shit. Like, don't let it get, don't let it be mixed. If a kid sees you pouring a drink, they're going to be a raging alcoholic. But none of that's true. Neither of my kids drink very much. Like they went through their, you know, Oh, I'm 21 phase and stuff. And now it's like, they have wine that's just like at their house that sometimes they have. Sean is, you know, a responsible drinker. Hey, you know, I've had a couple glasses of wine. I'm hungry. I'm going to, you know, uh, Uber eats or something like that. Something to the house. But she's like, she's like, that's like every couple months. It's not like something that's like constantly going on. And it's because they realize like, okay, I had my fun and now this is, this is how I know how to responsibly do it. And they can have the the drink every once in a while. And I'm sure they could go to the hotel and recognize like, this is going to cost me 50 bucks to get like <laughs> the, uh, I, I will say, uh, this is why we don't do news stories very often because right. <laughs> we get on like rant tangents for sure. So, um, but it okay. is a, it's definitely a Utah thing that will affect a lot of yeah. Utahns. And I mean, it probably will not affect almost any Utah, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. It will have such a small impact on the population at large. Well, and like I said, it's the, it's the, I mean, they originally were introduced so that people could take liquor into bars. That's why we originally got them in like the sixties. Right. Because, so they didn't have to brown bag. Yeah. And they got pulled back out in the nineties and I don't know. It's it, the whole thing is a little ridiculous that it's even a fucking discussion that they have to open the shit up for public comment because it's fucking stupid. Yeah. So. All right, so uh, it is Utah Adventure Week. Um, <laughs> we will talk about some other cool shit in Utah outside of our liquor laws uh, this week. Um, we had a very, um, I, I would say uh, it was definitely a pleasure. We got to have a great experience uh, this month for our adventure. We decided, um, you know, the, the, the festival of colors, uh, is, I think it's, uh, it, it's, it already happened. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's in the spring. And so we, we kind of wanted to do some Utah adventures that you would be able to do later after it was March 25th or it'll be, yeah, it'll be be March 25th and 26th next year. So in early spring, uh, Utah has, um, the biggest festival of color celebration outside of India. In the world. In, it's in Spanish Fork. And it's in Spanish Fork, Utah, which is a places. fucking weird ass place when you think of it. And the reason it's down there is we have a Hare Krishna temple in Spanish Fork. It's the uh, Radha Krishna temple, uh, in Spanish Fork, Utah. You can see it off I-15 as you're driving mm-hmm. and you, uh, you look to the east, you'll see it just right off of I-15 on the southern part of Spanish Fork. It's beautiful. It doesn't fit in. It sticks out like a, Amazing sore thumb, but you see it. But like, it definitely what? sticks out like a sore thumb. The hell is that? <laughs> um, 
So we, you know, we, we, uh, reached out to him and we got, uh, a, a private tour of the, the temple and the grounds. Uh, we've, we've got, uh, we've got some amazing audio that we'll share at the end of the show, uh, from, from talking to, what is his name? Sheru Das. Sheru. Sheru Das, yeah. Is that uh, how you say it? Sheru? I, don't I was know. pronouncing Ch- it Karu. It might be Karu. Ch- it's C-A-R-U and I don't know how to say it. C-H-A-R-U. Is it? Uh, Charu, Karu. Anyway. Charu. Amazing individual. Wonderful guy. Um, was completely open, shared tons and tons of shit with us. It was fantastic. Um, we really, really enjoyed ourselves. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to talk about, cause it's, I mean, it is somewhat uniquely Utah. I mean, the, the temple itself, uh, is incredibly unique, um, uh, to the United States, not just to Utah. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah. I'll let Jeremy talk. He likes doing all the history stuff, so I'm going to let him do some of that. So I'll do a little bit of background, and then and then I think we should just kind of walk through our journey and talk about what we did. But let me start with um, <clears throat> Charu, Karu, we're not quite sure, uh, Das. First, uh, so, so let me back up. So he leaves the United States in the late 60s because of Vietnam and the issues going on there. He decides that he wants to go to India. He wasn't just in India, but he's in a number of places. Um Throughout Europe, Singapore, India, looking for enlightenment, looking for uh, looking for what try, a lot of people look for, trying to find his way. So you had, you know, when Vietnam was happening, you've got the draft, and you have a lot of people that was he draft dodged. I mean, there's no two <laughs> ways about it. He did what tons of people did, but in his not wanting to be part of that conflict and and leaving the country, he wanted to find himself and he wanted to find well and he wanted to be part of a bigger solution not a bigger problem exactly and so that's part of his travel so he went you know like we said he went to india uh and he went to um singapore singapore and i think he was in like turkey or something Um, so he meets he meets his wife in singapore uh which which i'll just add when we very first met him i was blown away it's this wonderful white guy Nothing wrong with that, but I had in my mind that it would be an a, Indian, an Indian, or, especially with his name, or a Korean, or He's just a, a sweet, tiny old white guy, white guy, and his wife's this cute little white-haired white lady, grandma lady yeah, type, and their kids just are running around and just like that's where they live, and so so. He's, he's in India, and they're, they're trying to find a guru, a shaman, a somebody. They're trying to find enlightenment. And he's like, we were just having a hard time in India, and we ran out of money. So they were able to get jobs in Australia. He didn't really get into what it was, but they were able to find jobs in Australia. So they moved to Australia. The whole idea is just to make enough money to get back to India. But he said they got off the train in Australia, and, and when they got off the train, they they stepped off right in front of a temple. The Hare Krishna's. The Hare, Hare Krishna, Krishna temple. temple, yeah. And it was really cool. Didn't think a whole lot of it at first. Uh, but they decide after being there for a little little bit of time that, that they go to it. They want to become involved with it. Um, he said weeks turned into months, months turned into years. Next thing they know, I think they were there for five or six years, something like that, yeah. uh, studying. So went to India to find enlightenment, found it <laughs> in, found in Australia. Australia. So so they find this enlightenment in Australia. They come back to the United States, uh, and it was in 1975. He happened to be at BYU selling books for the ISK Con, which is the 
um, Inter- International Society for Krishna Consciousness. So, I guess, lack of a better word, a missionary? Uh, yeah, like a missionary convention. Kind of. Uh, and he said that, that the people in Utah, the people in Provo, the people at BYU were, were positive. He liked the atmosphere. Um, so, a little later on, fast forward, they're in Los Angeles, and they're helping with the what was going to be the Los Angeles Krishna Temple. His wife helps design... All of the, the facade. So they were, the place it was at in LA, they knew they were going to do like a really, um, extravagant facade, intricate. an intricate facade, um, specifically from, uh, what's the name of the region in India? Uh, Rajasthan? Yeah. Is that it? So I think so. So it's, it's, it's a very, very ornate, uh, it's woodwork, stonework. Yeah, Rajasthan. So it's a state. So Rajasthan is a state in India. It's um, just southwest of Delhi, right on the Pakistan border. Um, and it's a very. It's desert. It's incredible, like sand dune desert with a well, lot I of told camels. Them, he told a story about the people there that um, throughout history people tried to conquer them, but these guys were just in essence too badass. Yeah, because it was so inhospitable, and these guys were just so unbelievably good. They knew they couldn't get to the interior of India through the Rajasthani state without basically hiring these so guys instead, to run their army. They hired them. <laughs> um, so, so that's where the, the architecture comes from. It's the super ornate, ornate architecture. So, what they did is uh, his wife helped create the reliefs to be able to create the molds. Uh, to put on the facade. I think they said that the building was, was like a center block warehouse or, or something. Yeah, and they were going to keep the inside, but they just want, they wanted something nice on the outside. And to get that all done, they get it all ready to go. Things happen. Things fall apart. They don't end up doing the temple in L.A. They end up coming back to Utah, of all places, and the Catholic Church owned the location uh, but weren't able to make it work. Water rights... Uh, all kinds of different things. So the Catholic Church sh- sold it to the Krishnas. He, he said it was a uh, population, which doesn't surprise me because there's still only one cathedral in all of Utah, which is like like the epicenter. Like, I think there's like five in California, and there's multiple ones in in like back east and stuff where the Catholics are more populous. So it just yeah, there just there wasn't enough, and there wasn't enough funding to so they sold the land. So they sold the land. So. So, um, him and his wife through the Christian, through the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, uh, is the organization. They buy the land and they actually take the plans for the temple that was supposed to be in Los Angeles. Because they weren't going to use it. And that's what they patterned the temple off of here. And so they had, you know, they had the stuff to do all the molds and everything else. And so, uh, his wife designed that temple essentially. Um, yeah. So 1996, they break ground, uh, and it opens February 16th, 1998. Or no, I take that back. They broke ground in 96. In 1998, the construction began. And that's of, so when they bought the land, this is something that's important. There is another structure. There's actually a few structures on, on yeah, there's the property. A, an old, but there's like, like an old, cabin. it's like an old longhouse. And that was their temple for a long time. They lived and worshiped in that. That space. And, and, uh, when, so then they built this one in the late nineties, the mid to late nineties. Um, interestingly enough, uh, you know, he was telling us a story outside, um, you know, as we were talking to him, he was telling us, you know, when we were, when we were building this, we were, you know, we were 
doing paperwork for grants and, and donations and everything else because, you know, we're, we're a nonprofit and, you know, we don't, we don't have a lot of money. So we were trying to, you know, get any kind of help that we could. And he's like, you know, it was great because you like, you know, you send letters and, you know, you're sending letters just to get rejection letters back. But he said they were some of the most beautiful rejection letters. Yeah, he said they were wonderful rejection letters. Uh, he's, cause so he, you know, he, uh, you know, uh, applied with like the, the good Eccles, not the stupid North Ogden Eccles. Um, but he applied with the good Eccles and, and all of those different foundations that donate a lot in Utah. And he said the one that really surprised him is the LDS church. Uh, the, what was it? Is it the LDS foundation fund or something? Something like I that. I think that's exactly uh, what it is. It's, uh, it's a different branch that not a lot of people go to for help or something. And he said they actually cut him a, a, a decent sized check. I think it was um, like $25,000 like or something. Yeah. Which said, is, he said, he said, he said, I don't know how we did it, but every month we were able to make the payment. Mm-hmm. There's like a little example in here of one of the, they have, so they have llamas there on the property and you can rent them and you can pet them and you can feed them and whatever. But, um, they said at one point they needed $8,000 to finish part of the construction and they had a llama named Siamine, who was that bluish black color that you oftentimes see Krishna painted. And uh, a man came in looking for a llama for his daughter, bought it for $8,000 on the spot. Yeah, so a lot of really cool stories about how they made it happen. Um, kind of some other cool stories is they had to have, I don't know what he said, 10,000 gallons? So, of- not like, like, I think it was 300,000 gallons. It was a huge so amount. So because the- of where they are and because they're like, I think they're well, I think it's well water or something. They're far enough away from services yeah. that the fire department. For the size of the structure and because it's and the public number of people stuff. They had to have a certain amount of water in reserve on property. And so Charu said, um, we're going to fuck his name up the whole time. Well, it's weird because like his email is spelled one way and then in all of the other stuff, it's spelled another way. I, <laughs> I think the way he has it. it spelled on the website is probably correct. Um, but, uh, anyway, um, but anyway, Car, you know, he said, well, we didn't want to just put like a tower, a and just an ugly tank. He's like, so we built a pond, you know, a lake. He calls it a lake. It's huge. Well, and it's like up, it's. It's Let's not go. the lowest part like you normally it's think the of highest, a pond. It's the highest part because gravity feeds the because water. Because they use the pond. Well, when he originally built right. it, they didn't have any anything in it. It was just He swam water. in it. It was his exercise. Yeah, he's like, it's it's funny because it's like the size of an Olympic swimming pool, so I swam in it all the time. And mm-hmm. uh, he was telling us, so his, they had a, they have another koi pond that was like further down on the property, and he said, my wife kept bugging me. I want to put some koi in here. I want to put some koi in here. And he's like, but I swim in it. So they came up with a solution, a compromise, which was they had the koi genetically tested. They found <laughs> three genetic males put three genetic male koi's in the pond up at the top and that lake is now Scott except hundreds. for the the koi are um hermaphroditic and so the, yeah. one of them converted one so or now two of them hundreds. Yes. but the, but it's actually now a source of income for them so when you get a koi that's a certain size um for people who are building outdoor koi ponds and stuff you you want to get a bigger fish they sell off i think he said a couple hundred of them yeah he said they sell like three to five thousand dollars a fish a year uh, um and to people for ponds at the end of the season they drain off part of the water from in- underneath which is cool which is why 
like it being high is good into the gardens uh-huh. and all all of the fish poo that sinks down to the bottom is really good for yeah the so the 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 fish poo that forms the silt at the bottom of the lake bed gets fed out through and he says they so just it actually the keeps their it keeps their water cleaner and doesn't poison the fish which is an important thing in a pond like that you've got to keep it clean enough that the fish can survive right because it's it's a enclosed body of water so they can po- actually poison themselves um so they keep it clean by draining it out and by using that in their garden she said or he said that they have huge like their vegetables their vegetables are 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 massive and a lot so, of them one of the things that uh, I didn't even realize is they have a restaurant. They yeah. have a full-time restaurant there Up on seven site. Days a week. Um, it's a uh, it's a vegan restaurant um, or vegetarian. I shouldn't say vegetarian. Yeah, it's not vegan. So it's a vegetarian restaurant. Uh, it's a vegetarian buffet that's open from like eleven to six every day. He mm-hmm. said, um, and I asked him about their garden, and he said that actually because of how much they produce in their garden. That actually ends up being probably 50 to 60% of the food that they make is straight out of their garden. Like they're round. able to, to freeze or bottle yeah. a lot of it and use that on yeah. off season. He said like the zucchini, we get so much of it, but we cut it all up and we freeze it. So yeah. he said that'll last them into February or March. Yeah. And he said like, he's, like, cause you know, if you've ever had Indian food, uh, which is what most of this is, um, uh, there's a lot of sauces, a lot of very tomato-based sauces. Like all of the curries that you have at any of restaurants, by the way, they're all tomato-based curries, in case you didn't know. Uh, and so they will make a whole bunch of sauce in the in the summer and in the fall as they're harvesting gobs and gobs of tomatoes, and they will can all that sauce or freeze all that sauce. And like most Indian restaurants actually freeze pucks of the sauce anyway, and then they, they mm-hmm. that's what they use because they make it in huge, huge batches. Um, and so they're able, like 50 to 60% of the food that they serve comes from their garden year-round, which is amazing. And something interesting about the people working in the gardens with the animals in the restaurant is they allow travelers, other Christians, and I would suppose not just Christians, mm-hmm. but Primarily Christians. Primarily Christians from anywhere in the world can come. They work four hours a day, and that four hours Six days a week, covers their room and board. Covers their room and board and food. Yeah. That would be the board part oh, of room and board. So, so, way, so. so <laughs> they can stay there. So so typically they, they'll get up in the morning. They'll help with the llamas. They'll help in the garden. He says they're usually done by like one. Yep. So they can go out and do stuff. And he said sometimes like they had in fact while we were there he said well we have a we have a couple here from i think from germany and he's like they worked the last couple of days extra and they've taken two days off to go down to arches yeah, so they work like the whole day instead of the half day mm-hmm. and then those that, that extra time and then they they rent out the camels but those that work there the llamas are the llamas he was saying he was saying that some of the people that were working with him had taken some of the llamas down because they'll hold sixty pounds. You can they're pack animals, they're pack yeah. animals. Just, and, and he's like, and they'll eat anything. They're like, any, any you don't natural. have to feed them. Yeah. So yeah, so they're they're wonderful for hiking and camping, and so he's it, like, so that's a big source. And, of and he said a lot of people just come, like they encourage people to come up. It's like a petting zoo. Come up, feed them, pet them, love on them. But they have cows and they have some really my beautiful uh, peacocks uh-huh. and and some macaws. Mm-hmm. My favorite thing that he said about it is five parrots. It says they're parrots. The, the um uh the my favorite thing he said about the animals is we were talking to him up in the actual temple portion, uh, and he said, you know, it's it's he goes, it's funny because you can tell you can tell the difference between an animal that's being raised for food. And one that knows it's not going to die. 
Is He's like, no, somehow they know. Somehow they know, and the animals... Maybe it's the Clark... Was it, no, it's not Clark Bar. What did he feed him? <laughs> the, oh, cliff the Cliff Bar. Cliff Bar. <laughs> maybe it's the cliff, cliff Bar. Maybe it's but, the fact I mean, that he they... Was, he was specifically talking about like the cows and the and, and, and the chickens and the, the llamas. Well, they don't have a chicken 40 anymore. llamas, 12 peacocks, 3 cows, and 5 parrots. Yeah, no no chickens anymore. Remember? Like the, one chicken, the, the one chicken did die. The raccoon uh, got it. got <laughs> eaten by a raccoon. Um, but, you know, he said, you know, because the people that come here... They want to give food to these animals. They want to pet the animals. They want to interact with the animals. And the animals love it. And they're just completely different than animals that are raised for slaughter. Um, it, this does say that besides the group of um, full-time devotees that assist in maintenance, local volunteers are mainly teenage boys and girls from troubled backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And he said they have five full-time employees, I believe. Five or six. I can't yeah, remember. I can't remember. Everything else is is either the, the part-timers, traveling like we just talked about, or the traveling guests yep. that maintain everything. And they do, I mean, they have some other forms of business. So we'll, we'll talk about the, we can talk about the color festival. So the color yeah, festival, so they used to do a bunch of different festivals, like the Holy Festival, because Hare Krishnas are... A type of Hindu, essentially. Um, well, and as so, we found out, they do believe in the other deities. They just don't. They're demigods. The others, yeah. So right. they they see uh, Krishna as the supreme god, the the god over all other gods. The other demigods are just, you know. He basically described him as the boss that's out on the golf course. <laughs> out on the golf course, yeah. When all of the and and he leaves everybody else to 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 do the work. Uh, that's why you see Krishna sitting around petting animals, playing playing instruments. Yeah, I think I got the story that he told us about the guy that f- how he figured out that Krishna was was the the oh the, yeah, well, the leader yeah. guy. Yeah, let's let's let him. So tell I think I, I think I have that audio, and we'll we'll put that in at the end. Um, but that's you know that's some some interesting stuff. We got to talk to him a lot, but essentially, um, you know, they used to have a bunch of those different those different festivals there. Um, they have also, just in case anyone's wondering, they also have now built another temple in Salt Lake City. Yeah. And he said with the completion of that temple in Salt Lake City, and it's on like 33rd and like 9th East-ish, um, with the uh, completion... Built in the same style. Yeah, same style temple, uh, same same style architecture, which, by the way, that architecture, the Rajasthani architecture, that is the only Rajasthani temple uh, in all of the U.S. So yeah. it is very unique in that respect. But he said though, they, since they put the temple in place in Salt Lake, um, you know, a lot of their regular parishioners essentially that would come down and worship right. there, they're all from northern part of Utah from Salt Lake area, and so, so they don't yeah, they come go down to, as often. Yeah. But the Festival of Colors, like I said, it is the biggest one in the country. Um, it's the biggest one in the world estimated outside of India. And while they have the room, I'm not sure how many acres there they're, they got quite a bit, but they've got the room. And they're, I mean, they were pulling over 20,000 people. Yeah. Uh, he said, um, and you know, there's not room anymore for people to like, when they first started, there were room for people just to hang out on the hill and stuff. And he's like, now it's like elbow to elbow. And just a few days ago, they did, um, uh, oh gosh, why can't I think of well, lights festival? Uh, I can't think of the name of it right now. Diwali. Diwali. Uh, uh, the, the festival of lights f- for them. Um, so that's, that's pretty awesome. Like I, I it, it's kind of why we headed up on a Friday cause we, I had been talking yeah. to him. We wanted to go up on a Saturday. Um, They're just so busy, but, but he's like, you know, we're getting, we're getting ready for Diwali and, um, 
like it's just easier if we do it during the week and that festival has just just happened for them but again they don't do a lot of festivals um the colors is their big festival and i bring it up because well one we've talked about it before like it is the best place to go see thousands of mormons <laughs> throwing color into the air supporting the Hare Krishna. Cassie was there she's not mormon uh, no, but most of the people that are, uh, go down there are. And it's a, it's a really cool thing. A lot of people love to do it. Um, it's really festive and fun, but the colors that they do, they distribute. They sell those across the country to other color festivals. When uh, he was saying that they get them from India. They've tried other places, but they're just not as vibrant. So yeah. They so actually- they have specific suppliers in India that they get them from. And it's just like cornstarch and a special type of coloring dye, but, uh, so they have, they sell those across the country, and so they have one of their buildings. He's like, yeah, it's basically just a warehouse for all the color stuff. He's like, there'll be a FedEx truck like every day, like taking tons of boxes. It's like we get containers in, and like he pointed, actually, they had a couple containers sitting there that they had just gotten in. It used to be their like art center, yeah. performing art center, something like that, but now it's just storage. The, for the, the distribution color. for the color stuff's been so big for them, but that's a good way for them to earn money to continue to invest in the temple and the property and upkeep do the right thing is that another big thing that they do is school uh the the, the ton of field trips yeah. field trips they get to come and they get to help on the farm or or help with the animals they get to 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 be so part. they get like three to four thousand students a year through there well and if anybody's wondering yes this is a temple that they do worship in but they knew that there weren't going to be enough um devotees to make it just like a a closed temple that just survived as just a temple. So it was built to be a tourist attraction. So the main level was built specifically for the gift center, for eating, for, for bringing people in uh, uh, and letting them see that. And that's why they're open these expansive hours and stuff. Not that they don't, they, they definitely worship in there while we were there. There was someone in there. Um, that, that was saying their prayers. There were people that were coming and getting food. Right. And... So it, it was actually built purposefully for them to have a place to, to worship, but to show other people what goes on there and, and to be a tourist attraction. So don't hesitate to go there because you're thinking, you know, that it's like the Mormon temple and, you know, you're just kind of a nuisance or the cathedral where, they'll you know, ta- they'll take you around. They'll show yep, you. There's you, you just go in that, you know, of course they want some donations and there is a great gift shop. We, we got a few little things from there. It is free by the way, but yes, they do. That's <clears throat> for donations. And we bought some things cause don't be a jerk. I bought their religious texts because they don't leave them like the Gideons. I bought do. clothes. I bought their yeah. We both bought their Bibles. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I'm, I'm I'm actually curious to read through it. I that's the kind of stuff I really like to go through. I would say, and any religious text that on the back cover has quotes from Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry, Henry David Thoreau, that's got to be worth reading, in my opinion. <laughs> well, because you're an ex- existentialist, transcendentalist. Transcendentalist. I, I say this I a lot. What you are. Whenever we do our monthly thing, our our adventure week that this was one of my favorite, but once again, this really truly was one of my favorite. I, I always enjoy learning about other religions and beliefs, cultures, cultures. So this was, this was and really I, I, cool. I, I don't want to skip out on talking about 
the the grounds and stuff. So we talked about the lake mm-hmm. and the llamas and the birds and the pheasants, not the pheasants, the peacocks. peacocks. Um, but the temple itself is basically the upstairs part of the building. Yes. And the upstairs part of the building, you have to take your shoes off before you go up there. Um, it's a respectful thing. Um, but uh, it's absolutely gorgeous up there. So they have uh, a few different altars, uh, one that has the guru, um, and then they Did have... Did you notice his watch? Uh, I didn't. Neither did Chris. So the guru, he's he's modeled after the guru uh, from the 70s, I think he yeah. said. Yeah. Um, and there's an actual picture of him and then him below, kind of a creepy looking statue thing in my, in my impression. A little creepy, but, but it did look a lot like him. I mean, yeah, it was but, good, but good. like his feet are there and I can't remember what that represented. One of you I'm sure can remember, but, but on his hand was an actual, like one of those... Uh, Elastic bandy metal watches, and I was just like, "Oh, that is kind of cool." So and they have a they have a a, a big shrine to uh, Hare Krishna, uh, and then the, all over the place they have their mantra, right? The the Hare Hare Krishna, Hare, Hare Krishna, Hare Hare Krishna Krishna, um, Rama, Hare Rama. Rama 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 Hari Hari something yeah. like that. I don't remember it, um, but uh, he also did a nice chant for us, which I'll throw in uh, if I. Hopefully the audio is good. Um, but uh, and and on either side of the main altar, there's actually and this is not normal for a no, Hare Krishna temple. Actually I actually asked him normal. about it. Uh, they have a a Vishnu, uh, an altar to Vishnu and an altar to Shiva. And I asked him about it, and he said that's a really good question. He said. Most Krishna temples would not have those as altars. You might see those deities in places, but they're never going to have like, their own altar. While we were there, um, his wife actually was up there making the food offerings oh, yeah. to Vishnu. I didn't see one to... You wouldn't do that to Shiva. Shiva not to Shiva, but I didn't see a place for uh, Kursh. Krishna's, but maybe I missed it. You probably missed it because we were back away from Krishna. But anyway... He was saying the, the, one of the things that happened is they had a whole bunch of money donated. He actually talked to us quite a bit because there's a lot of Krishna temples around the country and a lot of Hindu, uh, temples around the country. And he said, you know, there's a lot of Indians in America and a lot of people don't realize how many Indians there are. And Indians, unlike some of the other ethnic populations, Indians in this country are very well to do typically because they're doctors. They're engineers. And it's they're usually the designers. husband and the wife yeah, and both have degrees. Yeah, they're both advanced degrees. They're both working jobs. So they both have a fair amount of money because they're getting paid the highest paying jobs in the I country. Did a, I did a home a few years ago for an Indian couple, both heart surgeons mm-hmm. at, I think one was at the University of Utah and the other one was What's at fucking crazy. St. Mark's. But anyway. What's crazy about that is they probably went to medical school in India and then went to medical school here as well because we require we don't that. Re- we don't recognize it. So they, they probably went through school twice. Like they're really qualified uh, 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 physicians and stuff. But anyway, he said, so he had uh, someone that, and I don't remember who he said, but he said he, you know, he made a very sizable donation. He's been a very big part of this community. And he asked me when we were putting this together if he could could bring in yeah. a nice altar for Vishnu and for Shiva. And he said, of course you can, you know, what, you're not going to, you're going to say no to like <laughs> to one the biggest big donors because donors. this is a, you know, the Krishnas are very, it's not against their religion. It's like, it's, no. it's not like it's 
a, a Catholic church or an LDS temple that you're putting those deities in. They're demigods. They they're part of a a, a a polytheistic religion. You know, they they recognize all of them, and they just recognize that you know in the Hare Krishna faith that the Hare Krishna is the ultimate deity. Um, the thing that I really liked about kind of the whole concept is the way they set it up to be so self-sufficient mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that it now that it's established for the most part everything they do pays its bills pays its few employees it's able to thrive from just everything that they do the, the gardens they were talking about the other festival that they did just recently the singing festival where where they had the singers come in from oh all yeah the and they world. were doing all the mantras and stuff and it was like a three or four day event and the whole parking lot was full of food tents were, and all that yeah, kind of people stuff. were were more uh, camping there and and you can tell that this man absolutely believes with all his heart and is just so spiritually in tune with what he talks about one of the things that he talked about was and i can't remember if he said this or somebody in their religion or a different religion but someone had said um, that people who believe appreciate other people who believe, which is true. If you're truly practicing your religion the way that it's meant to be practiced, whatever religion it is, you can respect other people's wishes. What's what's ha- what we see happening um, not only here in the United States, but around the world where there's oppression. Um, those people are not actually practicing the the actual religion, Muslim, Buddhism, Christianity, whatever it is, where you see actual oppression, that's against most of the religion's base yeah, practices. They're using the religion as a front for yeah. other things. And so if you get the, the truly devout people that actually believe in whatever their religion is and and the, the fundamental beliefs, I think he's right. Those people do appreciate other people who have that same devotion to a higher power um, and, and who believe in something bigger than themselves. And, and I think that that's awesome. So uh, I think that's, we're going to play a bunch of audio. I'm hoping um, to, to kind of end the show out. So, but before we do that, you know, we have our Oracle cards. I think they are incredibly appropriate, actually. They uh, almost talking, always are well, but ta- obviously applicable. But talking specifically about Hare Krishna is where if you read their texts, it is a lot of like mantra style, like, hey, it's very inward looking spiritual, like the whole idea of reincarnation and it's coming kind of back an is individualistic religion where they do want you to do that self-reflection. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a big part of of being successful there. But anyway, so our oracle card for today which I pulled is uh you are talented and fucking amazing. The world needs your power. Use your voice. Just don't use it for dumb shit. <laughs> there you go. Which is pretty spot on, you know, through all the conversations we had with him while we were there. Uh, I definitely encourage you to go visit the temple, go eat lunch there. Um, yeah, it's go, free to go. Go just take go. a look at it and go walk around the grounds. And if you um, want a tour, you just need to little, give them a little bit of a heads up, but they're happy to give anybody Well, a if tour. you're just going as like your family or whatever, but you can actually schedule group tours. He's very responsive. Email him. He'll he'll let you know like when a good time is and all of that stuff. So, How many people take care of this place on a regular basis? It's interesting because full time is only five. Um. But we, we hire some students also, like uh, Bethany here. And then we have, um, we're part of the Work Away, WUFA, and Help Exchange. Oh, okay. Those are, those are three, you know, you have your host profile online, and then there are members. 
and so you can connect with young people from all over the world, really. That's um, great. Right now we have two, two um, young people from China who have been living in Canada for quite some time. We have a, a girl from Germany. We have a couple from Finland and then a couple, three Americans. So we've got about eight. And they, um, our minimum stay is two weeks. They work four hours a day, six days a week for room and board. Nice. So if you're traveling, it's a great deal because your cool. two yeah. biggest expenses are accommodation and food. So by working four hours, six days a week, you cover all of that. And by one o'clock, they're free to go and go to the hot springs or go. They, we, just, we just gave them. They worked extra days, extra hours. So they went for two days to Moab just recently. So what kind of things do they do? Do they help with the animals or do they help with everything? They help with the animals, grooming and training the animals. They help in the kitchen. They help with, with cleanliness. And right now there's a lot in the garden. We're getting tons and tons of the, last, time, yeah. the last of the tomatoes. I mean, before that it was peppers. and Before that it was zucchinis and melons. We've still got like 40 melons lying down there. Just like pick one a day. And... And, and so, and then, of course, we're, we're um, getting ready, um, pull, pulling things out of the gardens. We're going to be doing some major tilling. And then we, we have a lake here, which is in the highest point of the property. And the, the lake, which is enriched by fish species, is the, is the best sort of nutrition for gardens. So we'll, we'll, um, we'll make the trenches in the garden for the spring, but then we'll flood those trenches with that, nu- that nutrition-rich water. Oh, it's awesome! All winter, and that's we get great. amazing crops. You know, amazing. I mean, we we're not like permaculturalists or anything, but just because we have that lake, uh, and we just gravity feed our things, and then we have the llama pellets. I mean, we we outproduce all, all the professionals. <laughs> Jeremy has the same experiences because he uses his chickens uh, for some of his stuff. Right? Yeah. Well, chicken really coop and use that. Yeah, till it in with the our tomatoes really love it. Corn really loves it, and they keep bees, so all their stuff flowers yeah, very bees. well. <laughs> that's that's really nice. That's nice. So, is most of the food that you make uh, for the buffet does that mostly come from here on site, or this time of year? About fifty percent of it does. Oh, nice. Okay. And then we we get so much that um, we make sauces. You know, we'll make the bags, gallon oh, bags yeah. of tomato sauces and freeze them. We've got trays and trays of zucchinis in the, you know, cooked mm-hmm. zucchinis from the garden, peppers in the garden, tomatoes in the garden, all cooked in the freezer. And they'll, they'll keep, they'll last until February or March. Oh, that's awesome. This is, a, illustrates a verse from the second chapter on reincarnation. It shows how during one lifetime we actually have so many bodies. You don't have to wait till next life to know if you're changing bodies. Changing bodies right now. Every every day, thousands of cells are dying or replaced by new cells. Every seven to ten years, all the cells of our current body will have died and been replaced by new ones. So, in a sense, if you live 80 years, you'll basically have eight or ten different bodies. You know, it's very interesting concept. It's very real. Yeah, it's very true. And then finally, you know, when the body is old. I mean, it's a, it, it works out because, you, I mean, you don't want to drive your car when it's got 400,000 miles on it. 
be more expensive to pass emissions and inspections when it would be to just go out and get a good used car. See what I'm saying? Or a new car. So, you know, when the, you know, when the body's old and the energy wanes, if you still, still have material desires, appetites, ambitions, then by nature's arrangement, you get a new car and go for it another time around. The, the caveat is that uh, you know, may not come back as a, in a human body. It depends on the quality of our desires. You know, There are people that have license plates and tinted windows that says party animal. So, you know, they're proud of the fact that they have an animalistic consciousness, so next life they'll just get a body to go along with their <laughs> consciousness. You know what I'm saying? Of course, the question arises that, you know, does it go on forever? You know, does it... I mean, if you were LDS, you would sort of see getting better and better and better and better and better bodies, and I think they would project that almost infinitely. But but the thing is, if we're spiritual beings, we're eternal. So no, you know, no material arrangement's going to satisfy the soul. So, you know... you. The idea of an eternal progression within the limits of material life—it's it's an oxymoron. You, mm-hmm. you, you don't, you can't, you know. There, there is no progress of the body. See, this, this is, this is the body. You, you might fool yourself and say that there's progress up to this point, but this is not progress. If, if there's progress, it's going to be, it's going to be of the soul. Hopefully, hopefully we've used our life to cultivate higher knowledge and we leave life knowing more than we did when we came. If we don't, then we just come back as an animal. So ultimately the the soul needs to be in its own environment. You know, fish can be in water with a a nice uh, expensive uh, what was it, ski board? (laughs) Like that. But but the thing is, the fish's environment is not water. It's, it's. I mean, it's. I'm sorry. You could push the fish on land. Yeah. Give him a Porsche. Give him a nice house in Woodland Hills, and yet he would always be essentially dissatisfied. Really, all you'd need to do is put him in water. And so, the idea of you know coming back in better and better bodies is going to be. Not really satisfying ultimately, because we need to we need to get back into we need spirit souls need to go back to the spiritual world. And what a lot of Westerners I think kind of miss is that the spiritual world is a really cool place. It's not it's not that there's all this variety in the material world. And the spiritual world is just a bunch of clouds, you know, vapid clouds. In fact, the difference between the spiritual world and the material world is very simple. In the spiritual world, there's no matter. There's trees, there's houses, there's grass, there's mountains, there's there's a, there's a sky full of stars, there are people, there are civilizations, but there's no matter. So that means there's no action of time, there's no past, present, and future, there's no birth, death, disease, and all that. Your relationships are going to be enduring and everlasting. You don't have to suffer the loss, the disappointment of loss and sorrow, um, because every living being there is in their eternal spiritual body. But it's not really ultimately about us. It's about God. And our literature is described as the transcendental autocrat. He's the, whatever qualities that you see you're, you're attracted to in your wife or your husband or your children, those qualities um, originate in the absolute truth. 
There can be no qualities in the creation which are not in the creator to a much greater degree, right? Mm -hmm. If you get a sunburn here on an August day, 93 million miles away from the sun, it wouldn't be very logical to conclude that the sun is cold. <laughs> it would be more logical that the sun is... If you get you know, if you get this far away, you get a sunburn, it'd be a lot worse. The sun is a lot hotter. So we see beauty, we see wit, we see um, we see all kinds of talents, we see dazzling individuals here. Um, so the supreme person from whom that comes is the most of everything. You see what I'm saying? And so, even though we go to the spiritual world, we get beautiful wives, we get beautiful houses, we get beautiful... It, we're not actually very interested in that. We're, we're more interested in God. And God's one, but He's also all-powerful. So that means that each and every individual group in the spiritual world feels that God or Krishna is with them and them only. Because we can't conceive of someone giving themselves as much to God as God gives to his devotees and still having anything left over for any other person or any group. That's, but that's our limitations. God can do that. We can't absorb it. We can't compute it. But God can do that. And that's fine because all we need to know is that God loves us and that we love him. And so it doesn't matter that he's also out doing stuff but millions and millions of other living beings so that's kind of like the end when you get that relationship with God then uh, it brings a halt to the cycle of birth death disease and old age you don't have to come back so where did, where did all the pieces from the shrine come from did you get them from India were they made here the, the big uh, marble quarries are in, in Rajasthan which is again this is a Rajasthani temple so that's where most of the geos Rajasthan from. is uh, pretty much a desert uh, so their main commodities are marble and sort of they do a lot of sapphires and emeralds it's a very harsh environment and it and Rajasthan, Stan means place, like Pakistan, Uzbekistan, mm -hmm. and Raja means kings. And so these are these are tough dudes. You know, they grew up in the desert, they ride camels, they ride horses. The Muslims couldn't defeat them. When the Mughals swept into India, 5,000 Rajasthanis charging them on their ponies would put 50,000 Mughals to to flight with their tails under their legs. So they, so the Mughals, they realized that they weren't going to get past the Rajasthanis if they wanted to plunder the rest of India, and so they made accommodations with them. Ended up hiring them as the generals of their armies. So that's why the architecture became this architecture, kind of a synthesis. If you go to Alhambra in Spain and all, you'll notice some similarities, you know. Um, yeah, so um, they're tough dudes, and they grew up in a really, you know, a, a harsh environment. So the main um, products are marble, and then the other thing is uh, precious stones. If you ever go to the uh, in downtown Jaipur, there's a <clears throat> there's a museum. It has weaponry, incredible martial arts museum. I've never seen anything like it. Um, and then there's uh, fabric, 
And then there's the paintings of the kings, you know, going back hundreds of years. And they're all called Sing, which means lion. And the guy will tell you that where you see green, like maybe the king's wearing a green coat, that's emeralds hmm. ground up into a powder and mixed with uh, pigments. Where you see red, that would have been sapphires, you know, and ivory and so on and so forth. So the pictures, aside from whatever artistic value, they got a lot of um, jewels in them. And then, uh, and they worship Krishna. There's the main temple, and down is a Krishna temple, Govindaji temple, just like this. Now, see the deity there, the Krishna deity is being black, and in these pictures he's more bluish. So the Sanskrit word to describe his color is shana. That means the color of a monsoon cloud during the rainy season, sort of a bluish back color. And um, God is the source of all colors, obviously. Every color comes from him. But um, he keeps the best color for himself in his original form. People ask, well, why is Krishna blue? And I say, well, he's the cause of all causes. So he's blue because he's blue. There's, there, his, his blueness is not the effect of a prior cause because there was no prior cause before God. So he's blue because he's blue. <laughs> <laughs> and he plays a flute that, and that also that, that says it all that pretty much says it all who's the most powerful take a big multinational corporation like General Motors and there's there's people in procurement bringing rubber and raw elements for the metal and the steering wheels and the rims and, and then there's people in the factory riveting and welding and assembling and, and then there's the truck drivers who take the cars to the showrooms and then there's the salesmen and then there's the guys that clean them huge, huge corporation but the chairman of the board of directors is out on the golf course and all of that you know. by his influence everybody else is obliged to do what they do but he's not obliged to do anything, basically. And so, when you think about it, the most powerful entity would be doing nothing, you know, playing a flute. Set that was the ancient version of a golf club, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one uh, Westerner was said to have gone to India. He came back and he told his friend, he said, I was in India and I visited all the temples and I, I figured out who was God. I said, well, how did you do that? Well, I went to the temple of Brahma. Brahma's the creator. Brahma's obliged by some higher power to create, so he creates. And I went to the temple of Shiva. Shiva destroys. You know, when the time comes for cosmic annihilation, Shiva does his dance, and the sun gets 12 times hotter, and it rains for 40 days. And, Shiva. and he said, I went to Indra, and Indra responsible for providing rain showers for good crops. And the goddess of crops makes sure that the seeds grow and fructify and so on. And the sun, the sun god appears on the eastern horizon exactly in the farmer's almanac and predicted to a second a hundred years from now or a hundred years. So all this precision, all these um, universal controllers, these um, demigods in charge of the elements, they're all acting according to a great precision. You know, in other words, there's someone who's obliging them to come up with the goods at the right time, place, and circumstance. So I went to all these temples, and it was obvious that all these gods were doing, working. 
Then I went to the Christian telephone. He was playing his flute. I said, "That's God." <laughs> Spot on. <laughs> it's not original. This is an MC Yogi song called "Ganesh is Ganesh is Fresh." Ganesh is so fresh, children on his throne, surrounded by incense, fruits, and gold, with heaps of sweets piled up in his bowl. He guards the gate and protects its fresh home. When you're blessed by Ganesh, you can conquer birth, disease, old age, and death, because he paves the path that leads to the soul, and he's known for removing all obstacles. Now, some may say it's mythological, illogical, or philosophical, but with Ganesh, anything's possible, because elephant power's unstoppable. He's the son of Shiva and Pravati with an elephant's head and a big fat body. He's a snake is a belt to hold up his pants. He rides on a mouse and he loves to dance. He's the lord of all creatures, possesses divine features, attracts the minds of genuine truth seekers. He's the god of wisdom, beloved with children, known for protecting the homes that we live in. He writes the pages that the sages love to chant, dripping with knowledge like nectar, so we can comprehend all the ways to transcend, singing Jai to Ganesha, Yogi's best friend. We pray to Ganesh to remove the stress and pave the way to a place that's blessed. He unties the knots that confine our thoughts. He breaks up the blocks. He dissolves the walls. He unlocks the door to our inner core. He picks us back up off the floor. He's the benevolent elephant, super intelligent, dedicated to Ganesh, son of Parvati and Mahesh. Here's to Ganesh because he's so fresh. If you like what you heard, um, I'm just going to throw this in here because I'm lazy and I'm going to edit everything into the back end of this uh, <laughs> Go check us out at TNU Podcast and all the social medias. Let us know what you think. Uh, go out to our website, thenewutah.com. And uh, I don't think I'll have Folk Hogan play us out. I think uh, I'll let his mantra, if, if the audio is good, you guys will have his mantra play out the, the episode. So hope you guys have a uh, enjoy listening to it. Yeah.